Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, our text this morning, the first 11 verses of the chapter. As we are continuing through this brief series for the four Sundays of January to, to remind us of what God's called us to be and do for this place, for our city. What is, what is this mission that God has us on? Well, particularly central to that mission is the gospel of God's grace. Uh, it's not what we might trophy before God, but what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ out of his undeserved, uncoerced favor. That, that's what changes us transforms us from the inside out. We saw that the first week as we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, how God's grace changes us. Those who were dead in trespasses and sins now made alive, raised up with Christ, seated in, in the heavenly places with him. God transforms our characters. That's central to what we, uh, to everything we do here, is we want the message of God's grace founded in Jesus Christ to be central. But, but that good news, that, that gospel not only changes our characters, but changes our capital C calling. As we move out into this world, what is our calling? Our calling is to love those whom Jesus loves, everyone who comes along our way, uh, to love, yes, our neighbor as ourselves, but, but all those who, who come across our path are our neighbors. That's our calling. And so grace changes that, transforms our sense of what God's called us to, to be and do for the world. And this morning we come to this, this third theme, or this third C even. God transforms our cultures, these smaller circles of which we are a part. Sometimes we, we talk about the culture as though it's a single entity. In your notes on, in the first word on worship, uh, I actually capitalized the culture. Um, I hope the Ohio State University doesn't sue me. I, I understand they trademarked the word the um, there, so the culture. Um, but, but that's how we often talk about it, isn't it? But of course, we, we can't really change the culture. We can really only change ourselves and those smaller cultures of which we are a part, our, our families, our workplaces, our, our church, our, our various organizations of which we're a part. As we begin to change, we begin to affect those smaller worlds. I was recently reminded by my favorite rock band, U2, we, we, I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world in me. And that's exactly right. Not so much I change, but, but the gospel of God's grace changes me. And as grace changes each of us, it should change the circles, the cultures of which we're a part. I think Philippians 2 points us in exactly that direction. And so we need to see what God has for us this morning. But before we do, let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you for your great kindness that we don't wander about in this world without instruction from you, but the scriptures principally teach what our duty is to God and what our duty is to one another. And so, Lord, we pray as we come to Holy Scripture that your spirit would open our hearts and minds. Indeed, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would, you would open our eyes of faith, that we would see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by, by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my favorite college football team just hired a new head coach. I, I don't publicly talk much about my favorite college football team because this is a SEC country. I recognize you all may have differing loyalties, but my college football team hired a new head coach. And so, so as I watched his introductory news conference, I wondered whether he would use the word that seems to be on the lips of every coach nowadays. And that word is culture. Oh, you've, you've heard it if you've paid attention to sports or, or to the workplace or, or even here at IPC, we talk about our, our team culture or our workplace or corporate culture or our church culture. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, when people use the word culture in these contexts, they mean something that's often uh, unseen, even though everyone feels it, uh, an often unspoken and yet very real understanding of how we do things around here. And beyond this, culture refers to values shared by the people in a group that, that persist over time, even when group membership changes. Culture also represents the behavior patterns or style of a, of a group or an organization that are encouraged or rewarded. In a very real sense, every group, even our discrete families, represent a kind of culture. Cer certainly our families do. Our, our families are a kind of culture that are different from every other kind of culture. Perhaps you've said this. I know I have. Um, something along the line of, I don't care what Tommy's parents let him do. That's not how we do things around here. If you've said that like me, you were actually saying our culture is different from Tommy's family's culture. And we do things differently. We value things differently. Now, I wanted to start here this morning because I very much believe that when we grasp and are grasped by God's grace, it will necessarily transform our values and behavior, our character. We saw that from Ephesians 2, as I've already said. We, we are transformed by God's grace from the inside out. Whereas in the past, we walked as dead men and women, uh, as we were under the, the slavery, under captivity, to, to the whole complement of evil. Now, Paul says, we are God's masterpieces. 
We're called to love as God loves and love whom God loves. And so that should necessarily change the groups we are in and the cultures of which we are a part. That that was certainly Paul's expectation for the early churches to which he ministered, to which these letters are written. In this letter to the church at Philippi, he's urging them to a particular way of living and being together. This, This church's culture and our church's culture should be and is in fact different. The the kind of rivalry and competition and conflict that characterizes the world around us, the manipulation, the power grabs, the self-promotion, the triangulation, none of that should should typify the the smaller circles in which we find ourselves. By God's grace, by contrast, by God's grace transforms our cultures. All the smaller groups of which we are a part having been shown uncoerced and undeserved favor by God through Jesus, we can't help but treat others in the same way that we've been treated by God in Jesus Christ. And that, friends, changes everything. Now, the way Paul gets at that in this passage that we've just read together this morning is through a particular grammatical construction that we could call since then. Since then our ESV Bibles in verse one actually begin with so if, right? You see it? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and the rest. But the, but this this structure here in verse one and the first part of verse two is not so much a an if then as though there's any doubt whether these things are so, right? Paul's not questioning whether there's encouragement in Christ or comfort from love or all the rest. No, he's saying, since these things are so, then this is the result. This is what you ought to do. In fact, one writer observed, uh, we can almost imagine verse 1 as a kind of conversation that Paul is having with the Philippians. Paul asks, is there any encouragement in Christ? And the Philippians have to answer, well, yes, Paul, of course. Is there any comfort from love? Well, yes, Paul. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Yes. Is there any sympathy? Yes. Is there any affection? Yes. And then the punchline. Since you've answered yes to all the previous questions, then this should be the result. Be of the same mind. Demonstrate real, true, lasting unity. And and yet there's more to this sense then. Because in verse 1, Paul tells us we're in Christ. And he also tells us we participate in the Spirit. You see it? So if, or better, since there is any encouragement in Christ, since comfort from love, since participation in the Spirit. Now, that's actually really important. This, this idea that, that we already have encouragement from being united to Christ. We already share in the same Holy Spirit. You participate in the same spirit that I do. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. And since we are united to Christ equally, and since we have God's spirit dwelling in us equally, filling us with his love, filling us with his affection, filling us with his sympathy, since these things are so, then we are empowered and enabled to love one another and to live united with each other. Since then. But notice this this sense then 
leads directly to a, to a now what? Paul's just told us these realities in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, they are true. They are ours. And since these things are true and ours, we, we are to know and we do know real, lasting, vital unity with each other. But this unity that he describes has six characteristics, which he lists in verses two to four. Having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind, doing nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, counting others more significant than yourself, looking not only to your own interests or your own things, but also to the interests or the things of others. Now, the first three of these reinforce what unity looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like. Same love, full accord, one mind. Same love, full accord, one mind. Now, I must confess, when I, when I first wrote those words for this sermon, I, I couldn't help but think of the scene from the TV show Friday Night Lights. You remember Friday Night Lights? It was a TV show about high school football in Texas. So on Friday night, the lights. There was the early first season, the, the head coach gives this impassioned speech to his team to prepare them for the, the big game that they are going to face. And then after a, a lengthy pause, he looks straight at them and he finishes with clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Of course, there's a sense in which it's the same thing, isn't it? A team that has the same love, has, has the same mind, that's in full accord with each other, is a team that has clear eyes, full hearts, and cannot lose. But, but the other three characteristics that Paul lists here was the only way we can have same love, full accord, one mind. Because the now what really takes us to the pathway of humility, Several years ago now, our session adopted a statement where we talked about humility this way. We said that humility is typified by having the mindset of God, by considering others more significant than ourselves, and by consistently wrestling with the poison of pride and its relational and institutional consequences. You see, humility is not thinking that I'm a terrible person. Humility is not going about saying, oh, I'm just a worm, I'm not a man, um, I'm, I'm barely a human being, or if someone asks you how you're doing, oh, I'm better than I deserve, that's the reply. No, that's not what humility is. No, humility is about taking what you have and giving it away. Giving it away to serve each other. That's the very heart of humility. As the author John Dixon puts it, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, to deploy your resources, or to use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Or more simply, you could say, the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold and use power in the service of others. What is that? Well, it's taking whatever you have, whatever power, whatever position, whatever time, talent, treasure, whatever it may be, and saying and acting on this basis, this is not mine. It's yours. P please use this. Use me so that you might be first, so that you might advance, so that you might succeed. Well, what does that look like? 
Well, it, it looks like being absolutely committed to the idea that how we do things is far more important than what we do. It looks like involving people in the decisions that affect them, which means looping them into an email or bringing them into a meeting so, so that we might have a better proposal. We have a, a diversity of ideas we can draw from. In fact, humility looks like uh, appreciating a diversity of ideas and, and a diversity of friends who have a diversity of ideas so that we communicate that you don't have to like what I like in order for me to like you. No, I like you anyway. I welcome you as Christ has welcomed me. Humility looks like not insisting on being the center of attention, demanding and opinionated, but instead saying, I don't have to fill the room. I don't need to intervene. I don't need to have the last word, the final say. It looks like not manipulating others, drawing information out of them to use against them, pulling them into our inner circle where loyalty is the currency for influence. Humility looks like taking our, our greatest pleasure and using whatever influence or power we have to let others take the lead, to let them develop, to let them get credit. Now, if that's what humility is, humility goes, cuts against the grain of all that we are. How, how is this kind of humility possible for us? Well, it's only possible because verse 1 is true. You see, we have been united to Christ. We have the same participation in the Spirit. We know sympathy and affection from Christ. And so since this is true, then this is how we are to live. Now let me ask you this. How would your cultures change if you were to live this way? How would your circles, your little worlds that you participate in, the smaller worlds, how would they change? How would your family change if you were to live this way, to take whatever power you have, whatever position, to give it away, to give it away to your spouse, to give it away to your children? I don't have to be right. I don't have to have the final say. How would that change that little culture? How would that change your workplace if you were to take the lead in, in the way of humility? How would that change our church? This, this culture, if we were to live this way with one another, how would that change your club or your civic organization that you're part of to lead with humility, to fight against the poison of pride? How would it, how would it change things to, to live out of the same love, full accord, one mind, fueled by humility, to not cling to my own power or perspective or agenda, but to give it away? You should be asking yourself not just that question, though. How would my life change? How, my, how would my smaller circles change? I mean, another question to ask is, why is this the way? Is there not another way? Why this and not some other pathway to seeing my smaller circles change? Well, why this? It's because God's grace has transformed us. Though we have some measure of continuity to who we were before Christ changed us, there's still a radical difference now because we've been raised with Christ. The dead are now alive. We're, we're seated with Christ. We're now princes and princesses of the king. We're free to love our neighbors, free to, to make our circles as wide as Jesus' own. 
but we also have Christ's own mind in us. That's what Paul tells us. You see it in verse 5? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, if you have a different version, not the ESV, it might have a different translation of that part, but it always has, whatever translation you're looking at, usually has a little footnote that translates it just this way. It's because the original language is this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We might say, which is already yours. You see, Paul's point is, this is your mindset. The mind of Christ, your Savior, dwells in you from day to day. It's not something you simply have to go out and get or gain. No, because you are united to Christ and because you participate in the Spirit and the Spirit dwells in you, the mind of Christ is already in you. And because this is true of you, Christ's mind, Christ's attitude, Christ's humility is yours already. You just need to live this way, to live what is already true. Christ's mind is in you, so live this way. But why this? Not, not simply because Christ's mind is in you, but also because Christ's example for us. And what's Christ's example? Well, that's what verses 6 to 11 particularly talk about. He didn't count his position as God himself doesn't count equality with God as, as a thing to be held on to, as a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling, Jesus did. Jesus didn't cling to his own power, his own position, or, or as something to be exploited for his own glory, for his own advantage. Instead, Jesus made himself nothing. He gave up those privileges as the Lord of glory to know the humiliation of being born, of being a baby, of being the poor son of a carpenter, of being viewed by, by everyone around him as a, as a kind of non-entity. And the Lord of glory came not just to be human and a poor human at that, but also to be the servant of others. He embraced weakness and weariness. He embraced hunger and thirst. He embraced being human so that he might suffer and bleed and die on a cruel cross. And why did he do this? He did it for you and me to rescue us from us, to cover all our guilty stains, to make us new again, to make us alive again, to raise us from the dead. But he also did this to provide us an example for us to follow. Empowered by his own spirit, with his mind dwelling in us. And so the only way this example can profit us is for us to focus our attention on, on Christ and what he's done for us, who he's been for us, so that we might be conformed to that same image, to focus our attention and, if, if, if necessary, to stare at it so that we might be changed. Periodically, I uh, wander around the internet looking at different churches and trying to remind myself of, of the reality of different things. The other day, I was tracking down a particular church for a historical reason. That's a church that's now a United Church of Christ, one of the kind of pillars of mainline Protestantism. And so as I was clicking around on this church's website, a church up in the Northeast, uh, I decided, well, you know, it's been a while since I've listened to a Protestant liberal sermon. I'll, I'll listen to this guy. For 21 minutes, the sermon focused on Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is the great example of who we're to be. For 21 minutes, this 
pastor went on talking about Mr. Rogers, showed various clips of Mr. Rogers, and then urged his congregation to go be like Mr. Rogers. For 21 minutes, he didn't mention Jesus. Friends, that's exactly wrong. Neither Mr. Rogers nor your beloved mother or father or grandparent who was a Christian, not your pastors, not your elders, they are not your examples. Jesus is the example for us. He is the one who suffered, bled, and died. He's the one who left heaven's throne, no longer grasped at glory, and came to suffer and die. We focus our attention on him, and as we focus our attention on him, that's how we change. Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminded me of this this past week in studying this passage. Um, he tells of a, of a parishioner who comes with a question. He said, a, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? Uh, he felt that he, there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He, he seemed to think that there was some kind of patent remedy and I could tell him, do this, do that, and the other, and you will be humble. Lloyd-Jones said, I, I have no method or technique, he told the man. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that's to look into the face of Jesus Christ because you cannot be anything but humble when you see him. And Lloyd-Jones finished by saying, that is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him and you realize who he is and what he's done and you are humbled. And so as you see, when we look into the face of Jesus, when we see who he is and what he's done, we're humbled by his example, but we begin to see things differently because we're seeing in and through Jesus. And then we begin to live differently as a result and others then become more important than us. And their interests engage us and energize us more than our own. And we begin to think about how we can use our power and position and networks and investments to help them succeed. And we begin to believe that how we do things in our lives is far more important than what we do. And suddenly, as this happens, we realize something else has happened, something kind of funny. Not only have we changed, but the circles we occupy begin to change. Our, tr our cultures have changed. Because by focusing our attention on Jesus, Jesus then is freed to transform us, to change us, and through changing us, to change the cultures of which we are part for his glory. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we've already heard this morning that your mind is already in us. But as we're going to sing, we, we long for your mind to be yet more and more in us, that you would have greater grasp a hold of us, and that all our thoughts, words, actions, all our doings, all our sayings would be controlled by you and so begin to change not just us, but the circles of which we are part, these smaller cultures. And so, Lord, please, we pray, begin to do your work in us as you continue to transform us into your likeness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.